Glad to have you guys. Um, if I haven't met you or if you're new with us, my name is Kyle. I'm the college pastor here and really glad to have you guys with us tonight. Um, how was that chicken? Chicken okay? Good. Well, if you like chicken, you should come back next week because next week we have Chick-fil-A next week. So, so be pumped about that. Um, a camp that Caitlin Adams works at is going to sponsor that next week for us for some recruiting stuff. So it'll be fun. You'll hear more about it next week. But just know there's free CFA next week. So tell all your friends, but not too many of them because we only have a certain amount of chicken. So um, anyway, but if you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Galatians 2. We're going to be in there in a bit. It'll take us a minute to get there. Um, but we are in a series. Uh, we're beginning to wrap this up slowly, but we are in an eight-part series. We're week seven uh, that we're calling True Faults, uh, talking about lies about God that sound like the truth. And we have walked through all kinds of lies. I won't list them all out, but things like God just wants me to be happy. Your life what you, is what you make it. Last week, we talked about the lie that uh, you, need to, you need to let go and let God. And that was an interesting one, I think, because it sounds very uh, true. Uh, but next week, we're going to finish the series talking about um, one that gets thrown around a lot, that God will not give you more than you can handle. So that'll be the way we finish this out. But this week, we're going to talk about the lie that God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. And you know, this gets thrown around just kind of culturally a lot. Uh, a Barna study, Barna is a group that does some research kind of in the church about Christian things in America. They did a study. They found that about 82% of Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Uh, but before you feel too cocky about knowing it's not a Bible verse, know that they also found that over half of Christians in the church thought it was a Bible verse as well, based on their study. So it's more of a lesson in biblical illiteracy than anything. But not a Bible verse, for sure. Uh, but we know that it probably got to us through uh, Benjamin Franklin's, uh, what is, is the thing called? His uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. Y'all remember hearing about that in elementary school, that thing? I think we talked about it at one point. So this phrase got to us probably through Benjamin Franklin in some way in his little book. But the, the truth is this, is that this lie is really something that's kind of written in some way on the heart of every person. Uh, and we'll talk more about what I mean um, with that in a minute. But the interesting thing is this, is that this lie that we're talking about tonight in some ways is the parallel or the mirror of the one we talked about last week. We talked last week about you need to let go and let God, and one of the reasons we said that that was an unhelpful phrase is because it can encourage us to live a passive Christian life, you know, one where we're not really concerned about taking God's commands seriously and taking obedience seriously. It can lead us to be passive. And while we are saved by grace, if you remember last week, we said that grace is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. That grace should lead us to put effort in pursuing Christ, but not feel like we're earning anything in, in that, because grace, rightly understood, should compel us to love Christ and obey him more. Right? The motivation is grace, but obedience makes sense. You know, we're not called to be lazy or drifting in our faith. That's kind of what we talked about last week. But this week is in some ways kind of the other side of, um, of this distortion of the gospel, if you will. Because if last week we talked about the danger of not prioritizing obedience to God, this week we're going to talk about the danger of relying too much on our obedience for our standing with God. And I'll explain what that means more in a minute. But the word that gets thrown around a lot with this, the more theological word, if you will, is the word legalism, is what we'll kind of dive into tonight and we'll unpack it more. But the classic view of legalism is that it's where we view our relationship with God like a legal contract. That's where we get legalism from. You know, that we have to keep obeying the rules. We have to keep obeying the law of God if we're going to be good with Him. It's, it's a legal idea that it's all based on our performance. 
And like the stereotypical legalist, you know, if you've been in church much, is like the Pharisee, right? He's the one who's really concerned about getting all the rules right, checking off all the boxes. He bases his salvation is standing with God based on the fact that he has done all these things right. Of course, God's going to let him into heaven, right? Because he's done all the right things. That's the kind of stereotypical legalist. But most of us know that's not necessarily true or accurate. You maybe heard that clear in church a lot. But the truth is that legalism and and this effect in our hearts goes a lot deeper than just that surface level, which is what we're going to talk about some tonight. We'll get into more of the nuance of it. So we got three kind of simple points tonight. The first one we'll talk about is the lie of legalism. Why is it a lie? Why is it a distortion of the gospel? And here's the thing. First off, legalism can take a a different shape in everybody's life. It doesn't always look like just kind of propping yourself up simply by how good you are as a person. Because yes, it can involve you thinking that you earn your salvation. But also legalism can express itself and just simply being judgmental toward other people because you think you're more wise than them, you know, you're more mature in your faith than, than they are. And really that can become legalism because still you're measuring yourself by yourself. Like you're thinking, okay, well look at my own standard of how good I am and therefore you over here, you're not as good as me. I'm judging you in that kind of way. That's, that's a form of legalism. You know, legalism may not make us think we, we lost our salvation when we sin, but legalism can make us ride this spiritual roller coaster over and over again where we think, you know, any given day that God loves us more or loves us less based on how well we did our quiet time or if we did our quiet time or, you know, if we prayed enough or whatever like that. And we we can ride this roller coaster of thinking our obedience, our performance is somehow how God, you know, loves us or how he rates or, you know, shows his love to us. And this idea that God helps those who help themselves, in many ways, is kind of like a legalist proverb. You know, if, if the if they had a book of Proverbs for legalism, it would probably be in there. Because just consider what this says. Like, what does this phrase actually say? If you express it a different way, it says that God does not help those who cannot help themselves. That God does not help those who choose not to help themselves. And that goes completely against... Oh, this may be dying. I think it... Oh, we'll see. Lance, I may have to get you to give me some batteries in a second. We'll see. But... um. I'll say that again, sorry. So it says that God does not help those that cannot help themselves, which goes against the core of the gospel, which is grace. It's grace. But here's the thing, Satan loves this lie because, you know, the the thing Satan would want us to do the most is just not think about God at all. He would prefer for us not to think any thoughts about God. But if he can't get us to do that, the second best option is to get us to think wrong thoughts about God, to get us to have distorted thoughts about him. And if Satan can't get us... From seeking salvation, he would love for us to try to seek salvation by faith plus some other stuff, you know, by the cross plus some other things. He would love for us to get this wrong and distort it and try to think our effort, you know, has something to do with this. But we got to remember that anything that adds to the gospel is a false gospel. Anything that gets added to it negates it. Because as soon as we try to add anything to the cross, as soon as we say Christianity is Jesus plus something else, it ceases to be Christianity and it starts to be some kind of form of a false gospel because it begins to negate and you know, downplay the finished work of Jesus, which is what this phrase kind of explains. You would think that grace would be something that we would all easily buy into, right? You think grace would be an easy message for us all to believe, that we would just be so quick to show ourselves grace, that we'd be so quick to, quick to believe in grace, to show grace to other people. You know, what better news could there be But at the same time, we know that's not as true practically as we think it should be, you know, because the gospel, while it definitely is good news of grace, the the truth is this, is that our hearts 
are hardwired not to accept grace easily. Our hearts are hardwired to, as the reformer Martin Luther would say, they're hardwired for works righteousness. That in our hearts, all of us, we, have, we struggle with getting handouts. We feel like we have to have earned something, right? We, never, we rarely like to feel like we just were given something that we completely didn't deserve. We want to think, in some way, I earned this. I at least played some role in deserving this, right? That's how our hearts are wired, as Luther would say. And that's why everybody, Christians included, have a hard time sometimes with this concept of grace and struggle with this idea of legalism, this idea of earning in some kind of way that God helps those who help themselves, that we somehow contribute to it. And that's why we're going to look at Galatians for a moment, because the best place to see uh, this idea and see the way the Bible addresses it is in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because historically, if you know much about Galatians, the church in Galatia, which is in modern day uh, Asia, like East, West Asia, it uh, had been infiltrated at the time by false teachers. Uh, they get called the Judaizers a lot. And these Judaizers uh, were arguing and teaching people in the church at Galatia that they didn't completely understand the gospel. There, there was these uh, non-Jewish Christians who had become believers. And then there was these Judaizers who were saying, all right, you believed in Jesus, that's good. But actually to become a fully mature Christian, to really keep growing in your faith, to truly stay united to Jesus, you've got to start doing the Jewish law. you got to start obeying the Jewish law. So you've got to be circumcised. You've got to start eating uh, or not eating things that Jews aren't supposed to eat, like no bacon, sorry, you know, things like that. You've got to follow the dietary restrictions. You have to follow the law. And they would say, you do all these things along with believing in Jesus so that you can stay connected to Christ and really mature in your faith. And Paul hears about this, what's going on in Galatia, and he is very upset, you could say lightly, and he sees this issue, and he knows it's an issue because he knows that what they're doing is they're taking the gospel and they're adding things to it. They're saying that the gospel is not just the gospel of faith in Christ, his finished work, but it's the gospel, they're saying the gospel is Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus following the law, which he knows is no good news at all. It's just a false gospel. So let's read for just a moment in Galatians 2. I tried to find a text that kind of summarizes his argument in Galatians, and this one I think does it well. Galatians 2, 15 through 21, uh, I think... Paul gives us a great, clear uh, argument against this idea. So let's look at this real quick. I'm in the ESV. It'll be on the screen as well. Galatians 2, 15 through 21 says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ in a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul's logic here in this text is that no person can be justified, can be made right with God, based on their obedience to God's laws, because even when we attempt to you know, justify ourselves in that way by obedience, all we end up doing is, is proving just how lost and sinful we are. That's why he says 
he proves himself to be a transgressor because even in attempting to follow God's laws and be good enough for him, we make it really evident that we're not, that we always fall short. If you want to see a great picture of this, other places in the Bible is think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus makes it really clear that all of us fall short in whatever way we can think of. He uses a couple of illustrations. You know, we may be able to avoid murder. You know, like hopefully no one here has murdered anybody. That's good. We may be, be able to avoid murder, but Jesus says that anyone who's been angry and bitter with someone in their heart is just as guilty before God. They're not literally a murderer, but that sin in their heart is, just makes them, makes them just as guilty before God because of that anger and that bitterness. And who here can say they haven't struggled with that at some point? Also, you know, we may be able to avoid adultery, but who can say they have completely avoided any lustful thoughts in their heart? Jesus says, you know, which of us has ever you know, maybe promised to do something and then broken that promise and, and fallen short on our word? You know, whoever here has harbored unforgiveness in their heart and struggled with that, all those things seem like kind of small things compared to the big stuff like murder, you know, stealing, killing, things killing and murder are kind of the same but different you know things like that the big sins that we talk about you know we're like yeah those are the big sins if I don't do those things I'm good but we think oh yeah unforgiveness in my heart that's a small thing compared to the big stuff right but Jesus says those kind of things while they may seem quote unquote small in our lives Jesus says they condemn us just as much because sin is much bigger than that and it goes much deeper than that and that's why Paul says in Galatians 2 that through the law I died that by looking at himself in the mirror of God's law he saw just how lost he was. He saw how, just how unable to fix himself he was. He saw how broken he was. And that's what's so amazing about the gospel of grace is that you know, in Christ, our sin was crucified on the cross and forgiven, as Paul says. And we're raised to life as new people who are secure in grace, not our performance. So if you're a Christian, you can know that you have been crucified with Christ and you live with him. That we, Like we said this past Sunday, his death is your death and his life is your life. That you're that identified with him. In the life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And so that your life now is not based on your own effort to prove yourself because you're never going to be good enough. You never, never were, never could be, never will be. You can't be. It doesn't discount the fact that we're called to obedience like Paul says. That if, if we live in Christ, sorry, if Christ lives in us and we're in Christ, the Bible says both, but if Christ lives in us, we're going to live differently. We're going to live lives that are going to honor him, but the motivation is going to be not earning. It's not going to be feeling like we have to prove ourselves to God because we never could, but instead the motivation is going to be grace because grace is much more than pardon, but grace is power as well. It empowers us to live. And that's why Paul at the end of that section goes as far as to say that if we could somehow earn our salvation through obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose, which is pretty, that's a bold statement. He would say that, but he knows it's not true that Christ definitely died for a purpose because we cannot earn our salvation through obedience. And the true offense of a legalistic spirit and the reason that we have to be so careful to guard against this is because that legalism, what it does is it cheapens the cross of Christ, that it cheapens the cross of Christ and, and looks to it and says that wasn't enough that I have to do some more things to really earn God's love, that Jesus on the cross wasn't enough for me. I got to, you know, do more things to earn it. And that cheapens the cross. It says it wasn't good enough for me. And so while many of us may know this, you know, theologically in our heads, it doesn't mean that we're not immune to it um, as 
normal, average, everyday people. You know, even as a pastor, I have to preach the gospel to myself every day. It's, it's so easy for me to fall into you know, a train of thought of thinking, you know, okay, this week I've done really well. I'm doing a lot of things for Jesus. So God really must be proud of me and really loves me this week. Or maybe one week, I feel like, God, I've just failed you so many times. You must really be disappointed with me. You really must kind of think I'm just kind of an embarrassment to ministry this week. And that's a faulty way to think about how God views us. Now, does God care about the way we live every week and every day? Yes, he wants us to honor him. But his love for us, the way he thinks about us, is in no way determined by our performance. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our own performance. He doesn't see our obedience. He sees the finished work of Jesus. That's why we talk about us having our righteousness in Christ. It's given to us freely that we're clothed in his righteousness. Because both those ideas of thinking that we're doing great because we had a good week with the Lord or doing you know, bad and he's disappointing us because we had a bad week, both those ideas are not rooted in the gospel. They're rooted in pride. Because what we're doing is we're focusing not on what Christ has done for us, but what we're doing. Our focus is not on the gospel and what Christ has done, but what we have done in our doing for ourselves. So the idea that God helps those who help themselves, it appeases our pride it appeases this idea that in some way we can do enough to be good enough for God, or at least some way contribute to it. But I love the way that William Temple says it. He's a, um, I actually forget who he even is. I just heard this quote. I thought it was good. <laughs> I can't tell you who he is. Um, but it's a good quote, though. Whoever William Temple is, he said this. He said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. We contribute nothing else. Thank you, William Temple, whoever you are. You're probably not alive, okay? But um, it sounds like an old school thing. But that, that's the truth of the gospel is that we contribute nothing but our sin to it, that we, we contribute nothing to earning it. So that's the lie of legalism. Let's talk about the false gospel for a second of legalism. Because the truth is that God helps those who help themselves actually has more in common with things like Islam and Mormonism than it does with the, the biblical gospel, the true gospel. You know, if you know much about you know, world religions, things like that, maybe you took a class at some point and learned about it, you know that Islam teaches that to go to paradise, their version of heaven, when you die. You have to work as hard as possible in this life to be able to possibly earn Allah's love. That you have to pray a lot, you fast, you give to the poor, you maybe take the pilgrimage to Mecca if you can, and then you work really hard not to sin and be a good person. And if you do all those kind of things, you then have a chance to get into paradise. There's no promise. Me and Noah were talking about this earlier that he worked in New York one summer and had uh, students in his ESL class who expressed that even as a faithful Muslim, they had no promise in the Quran that they actually would ever go to heaven, to paradise when they die. It always was inshallah, if Allah wills. If, if he wills them, he really wants them to get in when they get there, even if they had like the quote unquote perfect Muslim life. It's never a guarantee. It's always based on Allah's will, but also on the fact, have they been good enough? And that's a terrifying thing. But not only is this more like Muslim or Islam, it's also more like Mormonism. You may know some Mormons. Uh, they're great people. You know, they typically are some of the kindest and nicest people you're going to meet. And not to discredit them, but a lot of the reason they are is because they have to be really good to get into heaven. Like they have a lot of motivation <laughs> in being nice people to get into heaven. Because uh, if you read the Book of Mormon, you know that it's very much a works-based religion. Uh, I'll give you two examples that I thought were interesting. Uh, in their Book of Mormon, uh, one verse, is Moroni 10.32, says this. It says, love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Then is his grace sufficient for you. I'll say it again. Love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Then is his grace sufficient for you. 
First you do all you can to love God, then his grace is sufficient. You see how that's kind of a distortion? Another example is in uh, Second Nephi, or Nephi, maybe, I don't know how you pronounce it, but um, Second Nephi, Nephi sounds more uh, not country than Nephi. All right, Nephi, you know, but um, Second Nephi 25, 23 says this. This one gets me, all right? It says, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. For we know that it's by grace that we are saved, the Bible would put a period there, or not this phrase after it, but they in the Book of Mormon says, after all we can do. How does that make you feel to know, like, okay, you're saved by grace after you do everything you can? That sound like grace to you? Doesn't quite sound like grace to me. And if that sounds familiar, both those verses are really kind of distortions of the Bible. That's what Mormonism in some ways does to make it more credible. But this kind of thing is exactly what Paul was writing against in the, in the book of Galatians. He was writing against this distorted version of the gospel that adds on works to the truth. And so these verses of the Book of Mormon, if they teach anything, but they don't teach anything like the true gospel, but they simply teach that you're saved only after you do everything you can, which sounds a lot like God helps those who help themselves, doesn't it? It sounds a lot more like that than it does the true gospel. Because the question then becomes if you have to do everything you can, to, you know, if you maybe first believe and then you have to be really good to you know, earn it, the question is when have I ever been good enough? Like when do I know I'm good enough? When do I know I've done enough good things? And you can't just say, well, just trust God on that end because you're not trusting in grace at that point. You're trusting on like reward. Like if you're trying to earn your salvation, you're not trusting in the grace of God. You're trusting God to reward you for being good enough. And then when you know you're good enough, like you have no idea. Romans 3.23 tells us, the classic text about it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? All sin and fall short of the glory of God, not the glory of man, right? Not the glory of my neighbor, not the glory of my roommate. It's not a comparison game. The fact is we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, his perfect standard. So if we want to talk about being good enough, the only good enough we ever could be is what Jesus tells us in Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect as my heavenly Father was perfect. How's that working out for you, being perfect? Your goodness being perfect, I don't think any of us can get there. Jared Wilson, an author and pastor, says this. I know who he is. He says, to work for our salvation is to always be working which means to work for our salvation is to never be saved. To work for our salvation is to always be working, which means to work for our salvation is to never be saved. So let's, do the point, let's go to point three then. So in light of this, the live legalism, the false gospel of legalism, how do we fight it? How do we fight legalism in our own hearts and lives? Because God helps those who help themselves. Just like all the other lies we've looked at, there are really lies from Satan. They're the ways he tries to attack us, ways he tries to get us to distort uh, the proper view of God. And so how do we resist that? How do we resist these lies he throws at us? Well, Ephesians 6 gives us a great, great text, classic text, about how we fight these lies of Satan, these flaming arrows, if you will. So this is the armor of God text. If you want to pull it up, you can. It's Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. It's going to be in the screen as well. But Paul tells us this. How do we fight these lies? In Ephesians 6.10, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, sorry, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So if you grew up in church, you probably have a flannel graph soldier in your mind. Maybe not flannel graph, you guys are too young for that. But you have some picture, you know, some TikTok picture of a, of a soldier maybe because you're, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, uh, and so we, what we know is that Paul, probably when he's writing this, he's in, a, he's in prison. And he's probably looking at a Roman soldier. And he's like looking at the things he's wearing thinking, yeah, like, there's a lot of things we can glean from this about, you know, how we arm ourselves as Christians against the devil. But one thing you may not have noticed before, and it, it took me a long time to realize this, is that everything he mentions is not something that we like kind of you know earn or like kind of well up in us on our own, but everything he mentions in the armor of God is something that God gives us. And it's nothing that we kind of like, oh, we just kind of well up and develop better faith or we kind of well up and you know develop a, a better, definitely a better gospel. But everything that we see in the armor of God is something that God gives us. It's God's work, not ours. I just look at it, I'll, sh I'll show you. So the armor is the armor of God, right? But the belt is the belt of truth, which God is the only source of truth. So it's God's truth. The breastplate is the breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness God gives us in Christ. It's not our own righteousness. The shoes are the good news of God's salvation in Christ. So he's giving that to us, that good news. The shield is the faith that's not faith in ourselves, but it's faith that's centered on God and even that faith that is provided by God. The helmet is, our self, is the helmet of salvation, but that's salvation that God has provided to us. It's his salvation to us. And then the sword is God's word. So everything in the armor of God is something that God gives us, that he provides us. So what this means is this, is that to fight any lie of Satan, we don't clothe ourselves in our own works, in our own, our own ability. We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in that sense. But what we do to fight any lie of Satan is that we cover ourselves in what God has done for us and we fight in his strength, not our own. To resist this lie that we're talking about, to rest in the gospel, we don't simply try harder, but we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That we have to keep our focus on the truth of the gospel. We have to fill our minds with the gospel of God's grace. And that every day we have to put on practically, again, the righteousness that God has provided us in Christ. Paul says it in Colossians 3 that every day we put on you know, he talks about love and all these kind of things like fruits of the Spirit, but put on the things that God has called us to be. It's a daily process that we remember who we are in Christ, that we put on again his righteousness. Not that we lose it and put it on again and gain it again, but that daily we have to remind ourselves who we are, what he's done for us. We have to remind ourselves of the gospel, preach it to ourselves. We have to, as Martin Luther would say, sometimes we have to beat it into our heads daily because we forget it. And we have to put on this righteousness every day, just like we would put on armor if we're a soldier. Because the good news is this, that the good news is that God does not help those who help themselves. The truth is that God helps those who give up on themselves. God helps those who give up on themselves, who give up on their own attempts to be good enough for him, and instead turn to him to be rescued, turn to him to be saved. Because when we try to help ourselves by earning God's love, what we actually do is we end up hurting ourselves because we end up putting ourselves in spiritual danger, because we end up rejecting the grace of God. We end up saying the cross is not enough for us. So we try to help ourselves, we end up hurting ourselves. And that's why Jesus, yet again in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm just really going back to that tonight, I was feeling that this week, but yet again in his most famous sermon, 
He begins the whole thing saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He doesn't say blessed are those who are nailing it in life, who feel really good about themselves. No, he says blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It does not sound like the world's who's who standard of who's the most influential and powerful in the world. But it's an upside down kingdom because Jesus knows that it's when we give up on our own ability, it's when we can find him. That's why Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, it'll be on the screen. This is what he says to the church in Laodicea. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what this means is this. It's not until we admit that we're poor, that we mourn our sin, that we are able to humble, humble ourselves. It's not until we're able to hunger and thirst for righteousness that we can't earn on our own. It's not until we recognize just how poor, pitiful, and blind and naked we are outside of Jesus that we can actually receive the free gift of grace from God. It's not until we put ourselves low that we begin to realize and recognize that we can be lifted up in God's grace, not on our own. Two weeks ago, I mentioned this hymn. I'll say it again because I think it's very fitting. One line from Rock of Ages, one of my favorite hymns. It says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Because when we come to God open-handed, like it says there, when we come to him open-handed, he's always more than happy to fill those empty hands with his love, with his grace, and with his joy. But not when we come to him with our list of things we've done for him that week. That's, that's, that's legalism. But instead we come to him empty-handed saying, God, you're the only good thing in me. I need your grace every day. That's the truth. So as we begin to close, um, I want to share one more thing. Uh, I love uh, J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in North Carolina. He has this gospel prayer that he, I think he tries to pray every day to himself. But I love the first line of his gospel prayer. He's praying this to God. He says this. He says, there is nothing I have done that can make you, this you being God, there's nothing I've done that can make you love me less and nothing I could do that would make you love me more. And I, I love that phrase. It's been really uh, a crucial part of my even understanding of God over the past couple of years, reminding myself of this gospel prayer. Because the truth is, is that if you moved to Africa tomorrow and became a missionary for the rest of your life, there, that God would not love you more because of that. You know, he wouldn't love you more if you gave all your money, whatever little bit you have as college students. He wouldn't care if you gave all of it tomorrow to the church. He wouldn't love you more because of that. He wouldn't love you more if from today on out, you never missed a quiet time. You had the most amazing two hour, you know, holy moment, quiet times, you know, he wouldn't love you more because of that. You know, the truth is that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. Nothing you have done to make him love you less. But the truth of the gospel is that God's love for you is secure and fixed in Christ because of what he has done. And nothing can take that away if we're in him. That his death is our death. His life is our life. His return is our hope. That's the truth of the gospel. But that only comes when we give up on ourselves. Not try to help ourselves, but give up on ourselves and look to Christ for what we truly need. That's what the gospel points us to. 
So as we, begin, as we begin to wrap up tonight, if you've realized maybe that you've been trying to earn your own way to God, that maybe you've been buying into this idea of helping yourself and earning your way, you know, I want to invite you tonight to give up on that, to realize that God doesn't help those that help themselves. He helps those that give up on themselves, that he helps those who cannot help themselves. I want to invite you tonight to surrender your life to him. If you're a Christian, maybe it means you need to just do some heart and soul searching to realize maybe some of the ways you bought into this lie and repent of that. Maybe if you're not a Christian, tonight could be the night you finally put your faith in Christ. Maybe not your faith in your own works and Jesus plus something, but maybe finally put your faith in the true gospel of Jesus, that you can never be good enough for him, that you can escape the endless cycle of trying to measure up to him, but instead you simply can submit yourselves in humility to him and receive the free gift of salvation. I'd love to talk to you more about that, if that's something you want to do, if you have more questions. Um, but we have some questions there on the table. There's three on the, the sheet there. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and I'd love for you guys to take about 15 minutes um, to talk about those things, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, but don't go anywhere too quick tonight, because we do have one more thing we want to do. Uh, we want to celebrate Noah. Um, it's going to be uh, his last evening with us, so we want to celebrate him tonight. So we have a treat for you at the end to celebrate him, so don't get too in a hurry. Um, we'll hang out for a few more minutes if, if you are able to. Um, but let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll discuss at our tables for a little bit, okay? Father, we, we praise you for your grace, and you are God of all grace that lavishes it, lavishes it on us. We don't deserve it, or that you have done everything um, to save us, and we have done nothing except contribute the sin that makes our salvation necessary. And Lord, I know that uh, our Western American individualism really wants to buy into and believe this idea that God helps those who help themselves, that we somehow uh, chip in and contribute and that we, we somehow earn some element of our salvation. Or even as Christians, we somehow um, earn and, and kind of keep our right standing with you based on how well we're doing. Lord, we don't want to abuse grace and we don't want to uh, seek to treat the cross of Christ lightly by living in a way that dishonors Christ, but at the same time, we don't want to treat the cross of Christ lightly by thinking we have to do more to, to earn your love as, as if the cross wasn't enough. So I pray tonight, Lord, you would give us a clear view of your glory. Give us a clear view of the truth of the gospel, your love for us displayed in Christ on the cross. That tonight, Lord, we would be even more secure, more confident in our salvation because of this. But also I pray, Lord, for anyone here tonight who's maybe beginning to realize that maybe they don't have a genuine relationship with you, that they maybe haven't uh, truly put their faith in you and turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. Maybe they've been in church for a really long time and, but haven't really begun to walk with you. Maybe it's been more religion. Maybe it's been more tradition. Lord, tonight I pray you would open up their heart to truly see their need for you and draw them to yourself. But Lord, I pray you would bless our time of conversation at tables. pray in Christ's name. Amen.